welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Good, what a beautiful day. Welcome to Hillcrest. Uh, aren't you glad it was not raining on the day you had to get up earlier? Yes, the sun helps. Now, granted, we're here at the 11 o'clock service, so none of us have, you know, killed ourselves, but... Uh, uh, no, really glad to have you here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Christian Lindbeck. Um, I get to uh, teach here on Sunday mornings along with Tim and uh, lead an outstanding team of pastors and staff here. So we're glad to have you here this morning. Um, as Tim already said, we are now in the fifth week of a little series that is leading us up to Easter. We began it at Ash Wednesday, so a little high church language, kind of during the season of Lent, the 40 days uh, leading up to Easter, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Four Gospels, three of them called the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, they're looking at the same uh, story through different lenses, the story of who Jesus is. And we've been following the story of who Jesus is through the Gospel of Mark with this very particular lens on And that is, how is Jesus the stronger one that is promised in the beginning of this book? And so we've said each week, chapter 1, verse 7, Mark includes these words of John the Baptist who says, After me is going to come a stronger one. Uh, The straps even of whose sandals I am not fit to stoop down and untie. And so we have been... Looking, as we look uh, through the text, uh, we have been trying to land at the spots that unpack that theme of Jesus uh, as the stronger one. And it's our hope, uh, certainly our hope, that over these past four weeks, uh, we have appreciated more and more. We have many times we've read through Mark before, or uh, perhaps you've heard a series on Mark before, but looking at it this way, we pray as open new insights as it focuses on this uh, particular asset. And it, we really hope that it's just helped you love Jesus more. I mean, that's our primary intent, that you've looked at this and you've just thought again, anew, afresh, or maybe even for the first time, how remarkable Jesus is. Much more than prophet, much more than teacher, you know, rabbi. This is a remarkable divine human being who in every way possible shows himself as the stronger one. And so over the past few weeks, we've had this opportunity to see that Jesus is stronger than the most alluring temptation, especially that powerful onset of an immediate temptation, stronger than the most fierce isolation, stronger than the chaos that threatens to undo us. Last week we talked about stronger than anything that enslaves us, those things that we've kind of turned our lives over to and now own us instead of Jesus. And I just love that at each intersection, every time Jesus meets these supposed stronger forces or the circumstances that are around them, uh, he shows himself to be gracious and full of wit and uh, intention and attention, and each time shows himself to have an undeniable strength, power, and easy authority. Have you noticed that? At each time, it's not like he's wrestling against the circumstances or against the other power. He always exercises an easy 
authority. He is clearly the stronger one. Uh, well, this week, as we unpack it again, he'll be shown to be immensely stronger, superior, preferable uh, to these circumstances. I, I do think that this week, perhaps uh, even more than in the weeks uh, past, we'll be able to relate to all the humans. Um, each time, I, you know, we've always been able to make some point of relationship, you know, between Jesus and the leper and our, but not a lot of us have suffered with leprosy. And so it's not as, as immediate of an association. And I think uh, this week we'll be able to have this kind of immediate human heart, motive, conviction, and appreciation for Jesus as the humans uh, that are in this story. And again, I hope that we mostly appreciate that the stronger one came to rescue us out of love and not humiliate or condemn us with his superiority. Hello? Because that's <laughs> each one of these where he could be the stronger one, it could be like, now don't you feel rotten? Uh, instead is, now don't you feel redeemed? Don't you see how I've come to love you and save you and bring you home at each case where he uh, is stronger? Now, uh, as I've just said a moment ago, we've been saying the whole way, the book of Mark isn't long, uh, but it's really hard to get it done by Easter. Uh, and so as we've been focusing on those places where this theme is unpacked, we've had to, like I said, sort of skip and land right at those places uh, and we can't even land at every place where this theme of Jesus the stronger one is unpacked. And so we're picking and choosing and hoping as you read along, you're like, oh, there's another place. Oh, there's another place. You know, you have the, the key to unlocking this theme uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but I said we would have to do some skipping. So last week we had the privilege of end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. No skipping at all, right? We, I got to pick up right where Tim left off. Uh, right at the beginning of chapter 5. Well, this week, we have to skip ahead five chapters. So from chapter 5 to chapter 10. Now, five chapters might not sound like a lot at first, but Mark is only 16 chapters long. Uh, and we spent the first four weeks in the first five chapters. Uh, so we are dramatically, two-thirds of the story is over. It's moving to the end of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And that it means a dramatic change of context. Uh, we've told you a few times, not only are we moving a long ways through this book, but Mark, stuff happens in Mark. Mark does not, like, linger to tell you the details. So skipping five chapters means, like, it's a dramatic shift in context. Uh, and just like last week, really just like every time, the context, it isn't everything. But if you don't understand the context, you're not likely to understand the nuance of what's happening, right? You can read these in these little pockets, if you like. Uh, but the more you understand the context, the more you understand the audience, the more you understand what's happening, the greater likelihood you will understand the point of the story. So today, again, we must set a little context. In chapter 5, Jesus was still in Galilee, the north side of Israel. Uh, some commerce there, uh, indeed, some center of wealth, mostly a center of entertainment, a resort city. Uh, north in Israel, still that way today. And Jesus is, begins his ministry there, traveling around the northwest region in particular, um, calling out his disciples, doing his work there, performing these mighty deeds, teaching with great authority, and establishing the base of people around him who would carry on his work uh, once he was done. And so ministry was very much, remember he was kind of hush-hush about what he was doing, a lot of time teaching his disciples, either in word or by parable or by living parable, by doing it. Um, we're going to shift from that context 
And now Jesus is on his way from Galilee for the final time to Jerusalem. So on that map, it's that green line that runs along the east side, along the Jordan River and the Jordan uh, Valley Rift, goes down to Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the center of Israel in every imaginable way. (laughs) Not just geographically, it is the center of power, of force, of religious energy, of wealth, of commerce, of influence. Everything happens in Jerusalem, uh, and this is why Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. By the way, if you ever come, uh, when we announce the trip to Israel again, like I said last week, you'll notice when we get to Israel, uh, Israel's awesome. Jerusalem is the heartbeat uh, in the middle of that. It cannot be denied. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, let me say again, always teaching. Every act, every move, the path he chooses to Jerusalem is a lesson. Um, To cross over the Jericho and to come back before he goes up is a lesson. Every word, every deed, every action, he is a living, breathing, speaking parable of instruction as he utilizes these three years to put everything he can into this ragtag band of followers so that they can remember it later. That's why he says the Holy Spirit will help you remember Uh, put the pieces together, and then go about ministry. So he's left the north, and I need you to hear these words carefully. He's on his way to Jerusalem to make his final stand, uh, to suffer cruel death on the cross, and to be resurrected victorious. He is on his way to make a way, to provide the way, the road, the way. He's called the way. He is going to become the way. Through his death and resurrection, he wants to show the way, walk the way. He himself becomes the gateway. He's the way uh, to make it to the destination. So he is on his way uh, to Jerusalem, and he's beginning on his way to set a new context of understanding for his disciples that is blowing their mind. Uh, So beginning around chapter 8, he starts unpacking this idea that he has to die to make a way. And his followers are not understanding this. Uh, so, like in chapter 8, kind of midway of where we left off and where we're at today, uh, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and some of these disciples get to see his great power, who he clearly is. And Jesus says, Now I must go die so that I can be victorious. And Peter's like, Not on my watch. You know, I'm not letting that happen. He rebukes Jesus, who turns around and rebukes Peter. Uh, because they cannot get it in their mind that this man of mighty word and deed and action and power is going to accomplish his greatest victory in what appears to be a failure. He is going to lay down his life so that he might raise from the dead and be ultimately victorious. But it is his way through death and life. The way he's going to go baffles them from the beginning. I must die so that I can be most victorious. His way always includes death and life. Now, interestingly, he said it there in chapter 8. He's going to teach them again right before chapter 10, where we're at. We're going to be in chapter 10. And immediately following this story, he's going to say again, my way is the way of death and real life. So that's the sandwich of context. You with me? So he's really set up this context, both in his deed going the way, describing the way. So before you can read chapter 10 and Jesus meeting this rich young ruler in Perea, you have to understand what he's about. You guys with me? So here's the context in which we understand that. So now you can open your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 10. If you're relatively new to the Bible, it's kind of far right. 
Uh, that's the easiest way. To, if you start at this end, you're doomed. You'll never find it, right? So uh, far right, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's in that group. There is an index in the front. It's not cheating. Use it, and you'll find your way in there. If you don't have a Bible, I'd like uh, to invite you one. Just take one as a gift from us anytime today, right now or later. They're in the back. Snag a Bible if you need it. Um, otherwise, we'll put the words on the screen behind me. Uh, and then the rest of you, I urge you, as you're interacting with us, to write in your Bibles, write in a journal. We have free journals for you, too. Write somewhere so that you continue to think about, interact, study. It doesn't work for us to teach you this in 35 minutes. You've got to hear the words and unpack it throughout the week. What does that mean? How does that work out for me? Talk about it in your small groups. Think about it at lunch sort of a thing. So uh, be writing in there. Uh, the way I want to handle it is I'm going to read and today I'm going to kind of interject commentary. So it's going to be hard to keep the flow. So if you've got your Bible open, that will help as I interject commentary into uh, this circumstance, into this context as Jesus meets this rich young ruler uh, in Perea, which is just down in the desert, that map I had. If this is, this is Jerusalem, down in the desert uh, across the Jordan River is Perea. And in this area, chapter 10 tells us that's where uh, Jesus is teaching. So let me pick it up. Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 17. Now that you have some context, you'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, right? Context setting, context. Here he is on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, now Jesus is on his way. Where? To Jerusalem. To? To die, right? So this is, again, keeping that context in mind. Jesus is on his way to die when a young man runs up to him and falls on his knees before him. Now, we pick up from Matthew and Luke a couple of additional details. And that's why he's often called the rich young ruler. He wasn't just a young man. Uh, he was also, they all three say, exceedingly wealthy, so a lot of money, not a little bit, very wealthy. He was young, and he was in leadership, possibly even a synagogue ruler, so leadership of the highest kind, right? A civic community leader as well as a religious leader with a lot of money and a young guy, which makes everything about him running up and falling on his knees in front of Jesus unexpected, right? So here's a guy who has everything going for him. He runs up, falls on his knees in front of a dirt poor itinerant preacher from Podunk, Galilee. I mean, like this is the least expected thing for this guy to do. As far as people are concerned, this makes absolutely no sense. And this is where I begin to love the young man like you see Jesus does. Because it shows that the question that he is asking is earnest. He is willing to throw aside decorum and good manners and what people think about him. He is desperate to ask Jesus this question. It's something that has profoundly bothered him. He's bugged. How do I gain eternal life? Doesn't that kind of make you like him already? Hey, this is, this is not a pretender at religion. This is a young man who wants to know, how do I have peace with God? How do I really have peace? How do I have assurance and salvation and peace? How do I know that... God loves me and I'm okay. We're going to see in a minute. He's done everything he can do, but still does not have this sense of assurance. So he falls in front of Jesus and asks him this question, how do I have peace? I don't think that you should receive Jesus's question about why do you call me good as a correction. 
I think he's just slowing him down. This guy's running up, falls on his knees, calls him a good teacher, which is honorific and appropriate. And Jesus says, hey, slow down. Who do you think you're talking to? Don't you think the question's kind of leading? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. So he's not like putting it in his face, but he's certainly saying, slow down now. For the rest of our interaction, I want you to consider who it is that you are talking to. So then he asked Jesus this question in verse 17. And here's where I think we're going to see the heart of the issue from his side and the heart of the issue from Jesus' side. He says to Jesus, and again, remember, I love him. I think this is an earnest question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life or to gain eternal life? Here, I think we have the crux of the question. It's just the wrong question, but the right motive. Are you with me? In other words, what must I do? Every part of his context, his good religious upbringing. I love the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, But everything would be kind of what can I do? What can I say? What can I pay? What can I burn? What can I sacrifice? What can I surrender? What act of obedience will make God love me and accept me? Are Are you hearing that? What can I do? And he really means, what can I do? And Jesus answers him in kind. I think he basically is saying, hey, if you want to live by the law, you know the answer. So he says in verse 19, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man replies in verse 20, teacher, I all these things I have done since I was just a boy. Now, here, again, is his heart. No, he's literally saying, I think he's discovering, I have been a good religious kid my whole life, and I still don't know peace. That's the heart, right? He's not like, I haven't halfway to He says, I have done everything I know to feel righteous, and yet I still do not feel peace and assurance. I still do not know that God is for me, and I am okay, I have done every righteous deed, and he's discovered, I think quite honestly, being righteous is not making me feel saved. I know that it's processed to say, but my honest question is, what must I be do to be assured of eternal life? That's his heart. Now here's where we get Jesus' heart, uh, beginning in verse 21. In fact, literally, we get Jesus' heart before... Uh, Mark puts a word in Jesus' mouth. He sets Jesus' emotional tone. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. It says, Jesus then looked at him and he loved him. Uh, This word love here is agapao. Uh, It's it's often used for the way God loves us. And agapao is probably best described as like a love that is called out of the heart by the preciousness of the object loved. Right? Right? It's that young man is precious to him. And so love wells up in his heart because this is his creation, his person, one that he loves. I think he loves him and his question. Uh, I think it's a great question as it really cuts to the core of Jesus' work, right? He came to be the fulfillment of the law. And this young man is asking, what saves a human being? How does one get saved, feel assured, know God, Jesus then shifts to answering him much more honestly about his issue by identifying the greatest hurdle between him and following Jesus. And then we'll see 
is going to invite him on the way. So uh, I'm going to pick up verse 20. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He says, one thing you lack, young man, go now and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, I want to make a very crystal clear note here. If he had surrendered all of his money and given it to the poor, would that have saved him? All the generosity in the world won't save you. It would have been the right thing to do. It would have been the right thing to do for the next part, which is come and follow me. It would have been the correct response to the love of Jesus. But even giving away all of his money wouldn't have made him righteous. They already believed that the rich could basically buy their way into heaven. That you could give enough alms, be generous enough, uh, that you might earn righteousness. I don't think Jesus is addressing the money so much as this guy's heart issue. And that the real point of this passage is that word, then. Go to that verse where it says, uh, back in um, 21, says, go sell all your things. Then what? Come follow me. Lay down the hurdle, then come and follow me. Another fun Greek word, akalatheo. And now remembering our context, what we just said, right, about what the context is. Jesus, the word akalatheo means come walk the road I'm walking. Come walk on my road. Come go the way that I am going. And we know that the way he is going is on his way to Jerusalem to die and to be resurrected. So that his invitation to the rich young ruler is the exact same invitation that's been extended to every Christian since. Come, lay down your life with me. Come on my way to discover that I am the way. Lay down a life that is not worth keeping. Share in my death and participate in my resurrection. I find it fascinating that he's asking this young man to make the ultimate choice before his resurrection. You know, up to, you know, we all make this choice based on the fact that he was resurrected, absolutely. This is before the resurrection. He's laying the ultimate choice. But let me just say, it's not the money. The money would have been a great response. The issue is, will you lay down what you esteem most and come and follow me? Whatever that thing is, basically saying it's really hard if you esteem something more than you esteem me. I've been saying the whole time, context, context, context. It's worth it now to flip back uh, to chapter 8, verses 34 through 37, to read some of Jesus' teaching context for this circumstance. Uh, we've seen his way context. Listen to his teaching context. And now when I read it, let me know if you hear resonance of what he says to this young man later. Uh, that if the words kind of echo off each other, in that context, hear these words now. It's like, it's like he preached this sermon to this young man a year early, right? And then, listen, he says, uh, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Can I pause and say this is a year before he will take up his cross? So already people are like, take up your cross? Where is this coming from, right? Uh, must take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? In other words, what good is it for them to have everything but not have salvation? 
listen to this, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul, which is the very heartbeat of the question that that young man just asked Jesus in the context for understanding part of his response. So now we can go back to Mark 10. Jesus says, give away all your stuff, follow me. Uh, Verse 22 says, at this, the young man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great, massive wealth. Uh, there's a, there is a little apocryphal book called The Gospel of the Nazarenes. Ads, but I think it's just this picturesque detail of the man tilting his head to the side and scratching it. <laughs> it's like Jesus says, give away all your stuff and follow me. And the guy's like, uh, right? Uh, it says a dark cloud lowers on. He goes away gloomy. Worth noting again that he is the only human being who earnestly approaches Jesus in the New Testament who walks away sad. Why sad? Because he is unwilling to do what he must. In fact, well, let me say it, let me invert that. There's nothing for him to do except the total surrender of his life and everything that he esteemed the most, right? And Jesus said, what I want you to do is I want you to lay down your life for me, and that is the one thing he could not do because he esteemed those other things more. Um, when I finish Jesus' last words in verse 27 that I want you to hear them. I think uh, that you're supposed to love the young man like Jesus did and at least hold out the hope that he could have certainly been saved and maybe even was saved. There's a little bit of a twinkle in Jesus' eyes in verse 27 when he says, eh, it feels impossible, but hang on. So uh, we pick it back up uh, and he walks away and it says there, uh, beginning uh, in verse 23, it says, and the disciples were astonished. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, the funny part is it says, after he walked, it says, 23, Jesus looked around and then he said to his disciples, and this too is this, look around means I caught their eyes to, to teach them a lesson. I gathered their eyes so that I could speak to them because Jesus is going to use this opportunity again. As that man's shape is still receding into the crowd, Jesus looks around at his disciples and says, hey now, before you miss the point, let me explain it to you. Here's my point. It is very hard for those who have kemata, lots of stuff or wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And then it says the disciples were astonished. And this word here means kind of like mouth hanging open, blank face astonished. Like, how could that be? Before they can lodge their complaint, Jesus goes on. So he goes on, he says, um, says they were astonished. He says, go on, they were amazed at his words. He says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then if I read, if I pick up verse 26, it says, at this the disciples were even more amazed. Here it's amazed beyond measure. In other words, like, I can't tell you how shocked they were because this was turning everything upside down for them. Uh, As far as they were concerned, this rich young ruler was perfect heaven stock. Uh, everything about his life showed that he was blessed. He had affluence and influence. Uh, they took that if God gave you money, he was blessing you. All it's missing was he was really good looking and from the right family, right? And he had everything going for him. And they're thinking, and he's been obedient. He's religiously faithful. They're like, if this guy doesn't make it into heaven, nobody makes it into heaven, right? 
This is essentially what they're saying. If not him, I, I, you might do it this way. You meet a really good person. They're like a good, a decent person. They do all the right things. They're generous. And then Jesus is standing next to you and standing next to him, and they say, this guy's not even making it into heaven. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, oh, but I'm a, I'm a dirt bag, and that's a good guy. If the, if the good guy doesn't make it in, the dirt bag must be doomed. And Jesus says, essentially, yes. And listen, hold on. If I were measuring it on you. He said, that's why it's impossible. You know, this whole eye of the needle, isn't that just an obvious image? Uh, try to push a camel through a pinhole. That's, called, that's impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. Uh, invariably, someone will come and ask me and say, isn't the eye of the needle a gate in Jerusalem? No. You can just put that down. 900 years later, it doesn't fit the context. That's not what it is. It's an easy image. You can't push a camel through a pinhole. Jesus is saying, if I'm measuring it on your own righteousness, it's impossible. It says they're astonished at this news, and then Jesus answers them with the hope for them and everybody else and us. He says, Jesus looked at them again and caught their attention. This is all going to make so much sense later. He says, with man, it is impossible to be saved by righteousness. But with God, all things are possible. I come to save, I can save whoever I want. If it's saved on righteousness, all of you are doomed. And I think <laughs> without taking five more hours, what do we do with a passage like this? Like what's the point for us about how Jesus is stronger in our lives? How is, how is he stronger for us? What's our stronger application out of that? Um, I want to give you just three quick observations about how Jesus is demonstrating a comforting and profound strength over us, our reality, and what it means to be Christian, or even to think about following Christ. The first quick observation is, the actual salient driving point of this passage is not about money. Hello? It's often taught, this is not about money. Money is the sore place. This is a passage about how impossible it is for human effort to get anyone into heaven. It is a futile and ridiculous task. There is no measure. You could give away all your money. You could give away all your money to the poor, move somewhere, dedicate your life to service and being a good person, and that would not do it. It would be a wonderful response to the right motive of being saved. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Obey out of salvation. But it would not save you. This is his point. It's impossible that you would be saved. It's ridiculous. The only way is the way. So Jesus came to say, I am stronger than all human effort and religion. Isn't that good news? Stronger, superior, preferable, better. I am stronger than every good church thing that you tried to do. I got the best news for you. Even when you feel like you are not hitting it, I can redeem you. I love it when you obey, but I am stronger than all your human religion. Stronger than your best. I am stronger than your generosity. I love it when you're generous, but I, he is the way. He's in the way, on the way, to become the way, to show the way. Second, I think it must be noticed that what Jesus is touching on, you know, Jesus has a way of finding your sore spot, putting his finger on it, and then inviting you out of it. Does that make sense? 
So what he does is he could have said all kinds of things to this young man. He went right to his sore spot and he put his finger in it. And he said, how about this? How about you lay down this? And he's, I cannot do that. But it could have been anything, right? It could have been, how about you lay down your pride or your reputation? Um, I just thought, like, what things are, could he have said to us? Um, how many really, like, fit people, like bodybuilder people would say, would you lay down all that you get from that for me? How many wealthy or successful people would lay down money or success or pride or reputation or whatever, all of the things that we esteem more, if the invitation, because that's actually the invitation. I invite you to lay everything down. I may put some of it back in your hand, but let's start with you lay it all down. The invitation is for him to come and say, I am stronger. You lay down your broken life and everything you hold dear, and I will give you back a life worth living. The great irony is that most of us are doing this in idea only. Not many of us actually have to lay down our whole lives, right? A few people have to make that choice. And I know some people going through that choice who are literally like could lose home or reputation or finance. But most of us are laying down our life as an idea. Here's the wonderful thing is that most of the time when you lay it all down, he just puts it right back in your hand. He says, okay, now it's mine, but it's in your hand. You hold it with an open hand. Use it, enjoy it, deploy it, invest it, right? But it's not yours. It's mine. But, but I put it back in your hand. Um, C.S. Lewis has a parable that I love called, have you heard this one, Sixpence, None the Richer? Some of you know that one. Let me, I'll tell it really quick. Uh, a little boy comes to his father and says, hey, daddy, will you give me six pennies to buy you a present? And the dad's like, sure, here's six pennies. And the little boy goes out and he buys a present and he comes back and he gives it to his dad. The gift is enjoyed by the father, even though he bought it for himself. And the young man is glad to have given it to his dad, but only a fool would think that the father was six pence richer right? It was his in the first place. The, the exchange of the gift was glorious, but it was all his. And that's how we're meant to hold everything that we've got. All the things that we esteem, reputation, pride, beauty, success, all those are meant to be held out here. Open hand where he says, oh, those are all my things. You use them at will, but certainly don't hold on to them, right? So that's that laying down. He says, you lay down what you esteem the most, and then you can follow me, share in my death, Share in my resurrection, find me the way, lay down a life not worth keeping to pick up one that is worth it. Finally, I just want to quickly say, and I'll make, be quick, is this passage demands that we say something about money, don't you think? I think it, it, maybe that's not the primary topic, but it does, we do need to say something about money. <clears throat> because believe it or not, that's still the primary thing people are not willing to lay down. Oh, yes, Lord, I gave you my whole life. Sweet, you should lay down your money. Well, you know, you know. I mean, I, I mean it, but, I, you know, not really, right? Uh, this is tithing is so hard because it's like a gateway into laying down the whole thing, right? Uh, I actually surrender this thing to you. And I think as we say that, yeah, that you might think, but this guy was really wealthy and I'm not rich. I'm going to make this point quickly. Barring just a few of us, we are all filthy rich. We are the richest people in the world and of all time, nobody has ever been more wealthy than we are. Kings of old would swoon over our instant hot water and hot food and cold, clean water. And I mean, all, it's just impossible how wealthy we are, even as we compare it to the world. Now, uh, Ben Selleck shared this at the men's breakfast on Saturday, so the credit's his, but it was perfect. Uh, he was talking about the wealthy. Who are the wealthy? He said the median household income worldwide is around $10,000 a year. 
The top 1% worldwide is $32,400 a year. The median household income in Bellingham is twice the number of the top 1%. In other words, barring some context and stuff, who are the wealthy? Us. There are a few or not, but by and large, we so swim in wealth that we don't even notice it anymore. We are so fantastically wealthy that it has become normative for us. And I think Jesus just wants to say, I am stronger and superior to your wealth. If you lay it down, you will always be glad. It's better to choose me. I'm the better life. I'm the better way. Lay that down. Stop worshiping that, that you might worship me. Jesus superior, stronger. The way of enjoying anything you have is to lay it down first. I was thinking, you know, lots of messages end kind of on like this big giant note, you know, go do this. And I hope this message ends on a quieter note, which just says, where am I? Who am I? How am I interacting with my kemata, my stuff, my wealth, my esteem, the things I hold? And I hope that you find this passage both challenging and comforting. There's little hope for us to be good enough for Jesus lot of hope to lean into him being stronger. He is stronger than all of that. And we get to keep laying down a life that is hardly worth clinging to to receive a life that was hardly ours to receive. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.